This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class about notable speakers of the House, from Henry Clay and Joseph Cannon to Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi. I'm Dr. Ken Moffat, and I'm a professor of political science here at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, on the Illinois side of the St. Louis metropolitan area. And I do my teaching and research in American politics and public policy, and more specifically in American political institutions. And I've done a fair bit of my research in Congress, and I regularly teach a course on Congress here at SIU Edwardsville. Now, one of the topics that I talk about in that course is party leaders and the influence that they have over policy. And today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some famous speakers in the House and the ways in which they've influenced American politics and policy even today, as well as the operation of the House. And so with that, let's go ahead and begin. And so, as I mentioned, we're going to talk today about historical House speakers in the modern U.S. House. So in other words, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through how it is House speakers over time have influenced the political process. And as part of that, we'll talk about why study House speakers. We're also going to talk about several different House speakers over time, including Henry Clay, uh, Thomas Reed, Joseph Cannon, and Sam Rayburn. And the reason why I picked these four is because all four of these have had a huge influence on how the House of Representatives operates today. And then I'm also going to talk about three modern House speakers who've had an influence in more recent times, Newt Gingrich, Dennis Hastert, and Nancy Pelosi. And then I'm going to end up by talking about some policy implications of an expanded speakership. Because one of the big takeaway messages here is that the power of the Speaker of the House has become much more expansive than what it used to be. And so with that, let's dive in. And so why do we study House speakers over time? Big reason why we do so is because it helps us understand how Congress operates today. It also gives us some insights on some current policy debates and controversies and why it is Congress does some of the things that it does in the way that it does those things. And so let's talk about one of our early House speakers, Henry Clay. And so who is Henry Clay? He had several unsuccessful runs for president in 1824, 1832, and 1844. He also served two spents as Speaker of the House from 1811 to 1820, and then again from 1823 to 1825. He also served in the House the first time from 1811 to 1820, and then again from 1827 to 1830, not as House Speaker. And he also served in the Senate three different times, 1805 to 1807, 1830 to 1843, and finally 1849 to 1853. Altogether, he had a long history in Congress and a long history in American politics. And so he's a somewhat contradictory character in many respects. On the one hand, he was very much partisan. So many people say that partis treat partisanship in American politics today as if it's a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. We can go back a couple hundred years and see that. Also, Henry Clay was racist, and you make no mistake about it in terms of some of the policies that he had advocated during his time in Congress. Also, he was hot-headed, and he had a bit of a temper. But at the same time, he was a very effective orator who could broker deals amid substantial differences. And, and, all, of, and all of these things are going to come out in varying ways in terms of what I talk about here. And so one of the things he did is he cut some major political deals to keep the union together, but also censured a president along the way. 
And by the way, the censure was the only time a president has ever been censured in American politics to date. And so the first of these deals was the Missouri Compromise. And, and one of the questions underlying the Missouri Compromise was what to do with slavery in the territory purchased from France in the Louisiana Purchase. Now, the southern states wanted states to decide what, for themselves what they wanted to do with slavery. Northern states tended to oppose extending slavery into the newly acquired territory. So as we see here, we have a, we have a bit of a conflict here over slavery, what is ultimately, and in, in, in every respect, a morally indefensible institution. So Henry Clay's compromise here was to admit Missouri into the Union as a slave state. Also to admit Maine into the Union as a free state. So if you will, this continued a practice prior to 1820, where when states got admitted into the Union, they got admitted in pairs, one slave state, one free state. And the reason why was to keep the balance of the Senate evenly divided between slave states and free states. Now, except for Missouri, banned slavery north of 36 degrees, 30 minutes latitude. In addition, he was also involved with censuring Andrew Jackson. Now, this has a little bit of a backstory here because Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson were political rivals, where they went up against one another in the election of 1832. Andrew Jackson won, Henry Clay lost. This rivalry, as with many political rivalries, also became intensely personal. So when you asked Andrew Jackson about Henry Clay, he said the following about Henry Clay. The basest, meanest scoundrel that ever disgraced the image of his God. So not exactly real flattering words here. Now, not to be outdone, Henry Clay was also asked about Andrew Jackson and said the following. Ignorant, passionate, hypocritical, corrupt, and easily swayed by the basest men around him. And so not exactly kind words by Henry Clay on Andrew Jackson either. So all to say, there was no love lost between the two of them. In addition, Henry Clay very much believed in congressional supremacy over the presidency. And also Henry Clay was a supporter of the Bank of the United States. Now that one has a long story political history that's better explored elsewhere. But the real short version of that is this, that the second Bank of the United States came into existence and there were many supporters including, say, some people who formerly identified as Federalists. And, and also, you had, say, Henry Clay, for example, in, the, in, say, the group of supporters of the Bank of the United States. You had Andrew Jackson, on the other hand, who wanted to get rid of the Bank of the United States and instead send federal funds into state-chartered banks. Now, as part of this, there was a congressional investigation. And... Andrew Jackson withheld some documents related to his actions to defund the Bank of the United States. So one of the tactics that Andrew Jackson used to try to get rid of the Bank of the United States was simply not to deposit money. In it. And consequently, because of the, the defunding attempt, Henry Clay decided to have Andrew Jackson censured by the U.S. Senate. And again, this is the only time in which a president has been censured. Henry Clay also brokered the Compromise of 1850. And so the Compromise of 1850 had a few different issues attached to it. 
I mentioned three of them here, but there are others as well. Again, the issue of slavery, the issue of territory expansion, and the admission of California into the Union. Then we talk about territory expansion because in the U.S.-Mexico War in the 1840s, the U.S. got a bunch of additional territory. Then there was a question about what to do with slavery in the Western territories. Now, Southern states wanted to allow slavery in the Western territories. Northern states, by this point, largely wanted to abolish slavery and start with the Western territories and send the abolition eventually to cover all the states. Now, Henry Clay brokered the dispute with a series of aims. Now, this included creating territorial governments for Utah and New Mexico. And those territorial governments could decide for themselves if they wanted slavery in those territories. California would also be admitted into the Union as a free state. Now, this is significant because of something that I talked about earlier with the Missouri Compromise of 1820. And that is with the Missouri Compromise in 1820, you had states admitted in pairs, one slave state, one free state. And you had that pairwise admission going until the Compromise of 1850, where California got admitted into the Union as a free state. In addition, this also created a harsher Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, where captured slaves who were captured in free states had no trial by jury. In addition, when, cap when slaves were captured, these proceedings by no means resembled anything rem that would approximate a fair trial. And so as such, these proceedings were constructed in such a way to where captured slaves basically couldn't retain their freedom and couldn't win. In addition, it also led to increased traffic on the Underground Railroad. So here, I've... I, I feature a rock. Now, this rock it exists about 20 miles outside of SIUE, where I'm here doing this recording, and in a place where my wife and I did some hiking on the, on the Ola Nature Preserve. Now, there's a valley that overlooks the Mississippi River, where on the other side of the Mississippi River, of course, is Missouri. And this rock, and the monument inscription on this rock says this picturesque valley, also known as Hop Hollow, was a major entry point on the Underground Railroad. So you had escaped slaves from Missouri going to this spot in Illinois, and then with the help and protection of sympathetic landowners, multiple people got their freedom and sought their freedom from this point. And so one takeaway message about Henry Clay is that he, he attempted to cut deals to resolve national problems. Now, this practice of cutting deals to resolve national problems is nothing new because Henry Clay did it. Many others who followed him also did the same thing as we're going to see. However, they, as we're also going to see, deals got cut in different ways. Now, let's talk about a second speaker, Thomas Reed. Now, he is the first of the couple of speakers that we're going to talk about here who did a lot of the things that established what the House of Representatives looks like today and how it operates today. Now, Thomas Reed was elected as a Republican from 1877 to 1899. He served two stints as Speaker, 1889 to 91 and 1895 to 99. Now, Thomas Reed was known as a master of the use of parliamentary rules. If you would like, say, a more modern equivalent on the state level, 
you could look at, say, the recently recently departed Michael Madigan, Speaker of the House in Illinois, for a long time. And you could look at others on the federal level who have also mastered parliamentary rules in more modern times, like, say, for example, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, but also at the same time, uh, former Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as well, for a couple of examples here. Now, what Thomas Reed did is he created a substantial portion of the rules by which the House operates today. He also served during a period of high partisanship and substantial disagreement over economic policy. And so for those who are more interested in the history of this, this is where, for example, you have the free silver movement and William Jennings Bryan, as well as others, with respect to a dis- with respect to a policy dispute about what monetary policy is going to look like over the long term. Now, Thomas Reed was very much a cerebral personality. However, he did have a bit of it as a cervic wit. And so let me tell a quick story about that. So a Democrat once said to him that he would rather be right than be president. It's saying this about Thomas Reed. And so Thomas Reed responded, the gentleman needn't worry. He will never be either. In other words, saying about this person who said that about him, he's not going to be right, nor is, they, nor is he going to be president. And so Thomas Reed's accomplishments, one of them is that he established the Rules Committee as the hub of the House. So what the Rules Committee does is that it places a rule on each bill that dictates the terms of debate. In other words, how long debate's going to occur, as well as the number of permissible amendments, if any, on that bill. There's, there's some other items that the Rules Committee also dictates in terms of what goes into a rule, but those are two of the elements here. He also served as the chair of the Rules Committee while he was speaker. And so what happened was that he set up a legislative process such that every major bill would go through the Rules Committee and had to receive a rule on it as a condition of being considered by the remainder of the chamber. And so effectively what happened is that control over outcomes got consolidated to House party leaders. Thomas Reed also restricted the rights of numeric minorities in all sorts of ways. So one of the things he did is he banned dilatory motions. Now, what I mean here by a dilatory motion is that he banned motions that were really stall tactics, that weren't designed to further consideration of a measure, but rather were designed just to kill time in the hopes of killing a measure. He also banned another practice known as the disappearing corn. Now, a brief explainer of that. So the House of Representatives in the Constitution has a minimum requirement of number of members that have to be present in order for business to get conducted. And so one way by which to prevent business from getting conducted is quite simply for there not to be a quorum. In other words, for enough people to leave. And so if you get enough people who are willing to leave, ostensibly, you can prevent the House from conducting business. And not coincidentally, to kill a bill, if you will, if you want to so do that. Now, the way quorum got defined prior to Thomas Reed being speaker was answering during a roll call, or if you will, voting on a bill. So House members could simply stop business by not answering a roll call. Now, this happened once during his speakership, where where the role was called, and there were a bunch of members who didn't answer in an effort to produce a disappearing quorum, even though they were physically present in the room. 
So Speaker Reed's ruling was, was as follows. The chair directs the clerk to record the following names of members present in refusing to vote. And in so doing, those members now got counted as quorum. And if they're counted toward the quorum and there's enough of them there, then, well, congratulations, uh, you can now have your vote. And so there were a couple of attempts to circumvent this. One of them was that you had members who hid under their desks. So they hid under the desks, so that way they couldn't be seen. And if they can't be seen, then, then you don't have a quorum. Now, another thing that they tried to do was the mass walkout tank. Basically, you just leave. Well, they attempted that. And Speaker Reed ordered the doors locked to prevent members from just doing a mass walkout. And so all to say the disappearing quorum, which used to be a tactic, is now no longer a tactic. Another thing he did was that he simply declined to consider some bills on the floor. So there were some bills that members wanted passed or wanted considered that he didn't. And so he said, mm, no, not doing it. He also set the stage for very high levels of partisanship. So I have a quote here from him. The best system is to have one party govern and the other party watch. Thomas Reed said this back in 1880. Now, some people might be thinking, hmm, that sounds like po politics today. And that sounds like this is a new thing today. However, at the same time, one of the threads that I want to push through here is that a lot of the things we see today have precedent back in the day. So a lot of the things that we think are new today are actually not new. So some of the takeaways from the speakership. He set many of the rules by which the House and many state legislatures operate today. So they're compiled in a, in a document what are called Reed's Rules. And you Google search that and you can find it and read for yourself. All to say, a lot of those same things are tenants by which the House operates today and many state legislatures also operate. So let's talk about somebody who built upon Reed's Rules, Joseph Cannon from here in Illinois. Now, Joseph Cannon served in the House from 1873 to 91, again from 1893 to 1913. The two-year gap was because he lost re-election. And then finally from 1915 to 1923. He served as Speaker of the House and Chair of the Rules Committee from 1903 to 1911. So his accomplishments include using rules and tactics, but very much building on them. And so one of the things he did was that he manipulated committee assignments. And so more to the point, only those who supported the speaker were allowed to be on important committees. So if a member of Congress did not support the speaker, then if they got a committee assignment, it was not going to be on an important committee. Now, this also presupposes another thing about committees in Congress that gets explored by Congress scholars in many Congress textbooks today. And that is this idea. There are some committees in Congress that are definitely more important than others. He also solely determined who got to be on committees. In addition, he also used the power to recognize other representatives on the floor to his advantage. And in part, this was his undoing. Because what he would do is that he would use these powers to recognize conservative Republicans like himself, but not progressive Republicans or Democrats. So this was a time period in of the progressive era in which you had a split within the Republican Party between more conservative Republicans who had more pro-business attitudes and also progressive Republicans who didn't necessarily share those same attitudes. And also Democrats as well, which had their own split during this time period. 
Now, the result of all this was that it inspired a revolt against his leadership in 1910. And what happened was that the progressive Republicans and the Democrats, who would frequently get denied opportunities to speak on the floor, they combined forces to topple him effectively. And so, all right, how did it happen? And so we go to St. Patrick's Day. Now, St. Patrick's Day in non-COVID-related times is a, is a day on which many people go out and celebrate and party. And many people do it today in the non-COVID times, and many people did it back in the day as well. And so many conservative Republicans were out celebrating at, at varying bars and taverns and so on. And so you have Representative George Norris, a Republican from Nebraska, who was not among the people out celebrating and out partying. Instead, he was in Congress and he was working that day. And so he introduced a resolution to eliminate Cannon's power over the Rules Committee and to solely appoint committee members. Now, Speaker Cannon did not allow him to introduce his resolution. So Norris, given his knowledge of parliamentary procedure, claimed that this resolution was privileged under the Constitution because there is a constitutional provision that does allow members of Congress to introduce privileged resolutions. Now, Cannon again declined to allow him to present his resolution, but did allow debate over the resolution in a nod to that constitutional provision. Meanwhile, Speaker Cannon knew what may well come. And so what he did is he sent the House Sergeant at Arms to go into the bars and to go into the taverns and wherever else the remaining uh, supporters of his were hiding or were otherwise, say, party. Take them into custody, bring them back into the House to have a vote on this resolution. So some of them got brought back, but at the same time, the House voted to allow both the resolution to be introduced and also to pass the resolution itself. Now, after the resolution passed, Speaker Cannon's powers were significantly limited. Now, the reason why that resolution passed was that Speaker Cannon expanded the powers of the Speaker so much that it provoked a revolt. And that it provoked a revolt among those people who would normally not unite with one another to go ahead and unite. And so we political scientists often talk about things like this in these terms, that, quote, politics makes strange bedfellows. And you see this play out from time to time, that people who would normally never work together end up working together because they have a common shared interest. So a final historical speaker that we're going to talk about is Speaker Sam Rayburn. Now, Sam Rayburn was very different than the other three speakers because he served as speaker in an era in which the speaker was much less powerful as a result of the revolt against Cannon. So Speaker Rayburn served in the House from 1913 to 1963, served as speaker from 1940 to 47, 1949 to 1953, and again from 1955 to 1961. And those breaks in service were times in which Republicans had a majority in the chamber, so 48-49 and 54-55. I should say 53-54. Sam Rayburn is also the longest serving speaker in the House. So to date, he has served as speaker longer than anybody else. Now, speaker, now, Sam Rayburn was known for a few different attributes. He knew how to persuade people. 
He also knew how to have a bit of a sense of humor, but also at the same time, had a bit of integrity while he was at it. Now, his accomplishments include being chair of the House Committee on Interstate and Foreign Commerce. So prior to becoming speaker, he was chair of this committee. Now, this committee co-authored six bills that comprise the New Deal. Now, one of these bills, whose effects we see today, is the Truth and Securities Act. So this act created the Securities and Exchanges Commission, the government agency that has substantial responsibility with respect to overseeing the operation of money markets, including, say, the stock market, for example. He also brokered deals within the Democratic Party, because during this time period, as I alluded, alluded to earlier, the Democratic Party had its own divide. And the divide in the Democratic Party during this time period was between the northern and the southern wings of the party. And he also worked with dominant committee chairs who were usually Southerners. Now, the reason why committee chairs were Southerners during this time period lies in a couple different artifacts, which I'll explain pretty quickly here. One of them is that in the South, you, in many parts of the South, you did not have a competitive Republican Party during this time period. Rather, what you had is you had one party rule, and the one party being the Democratic Party. So as such, the only time members of Congress would really face any sort of meaningful competition wasn't in general elections, but was in the primaries in the South. And so as such, the big hurdle for many people to get elected to Congress was to get elected in the first place, because once elected, they would keep getting reelected over and over and over and over and over again. Which leads to a second artifact and a question. So how did these people become committee chairs? Now, in the House during this time, you had committee chairships determined by what's called the seniority rule. And the seniority rule is this. The member of Congress with the longest continuous service on the committee from the majority party becomes the chair of that committee. So in other words, because you had Southerners who came from districts in Southern states where you did not have effective party competition in many cases, as a result, they got reelected over and over and over again, where, say, their northern counterparts actually had to face competitive elections. And so as such, you had committee chairs who, who were usually Southerners. In addition, he relied on personal prestige. Again, that sense of integrity, if you will, as well as personal friendships to bridge differences between these wings in the Democratic Party. Now, as part of that, what Sam Rayburn did is that he cut lots of backroom deals. So, for example, with the Civil Rights Act of 1957. So one of the big issues on which there was a divide between the northern and southern wings of the Democratic Party was civil rights. And so the Civil Rights Act of 1957 is one of the fundamental civil rights acts that we have today. And did lots of different things. At the same time, to get this act passed, he had to cut a deal between the northern and the southern wings of the Democratic Party to get this act through. And he was able to do it successfully. One of the things he did in an effort to further civil rights was to expand the Rules Committee by three seats. Now, this was done specifically to prevent the Rules Committee chair at the time, Judge Smith, a Democrat from Virginia, from continuing to obstruct civil rights, housing, and education legislation. 
Now, this was a pretty big floor fight. It was one of the last big floor fights that Sam Rayburn had as speaker. He won the fight by five votes. Now, what this allowed was the Kennedy administration to have its policy proposals get a House floor vote. And the Kennedy administration had a number of different policy proposals to do that. Now, now some people might take what I'm saying as if to say that Sam Rayburn was a large was a large scale proponent of civil rights. And to be clear, that that's not really so. And if you look at his record, you look at some of the statements that he said, he did make varying statements that one could conclude were not exactly supportive of civil rights. So Sam Rayburn's legacy, legislative productivity, deal-making, and building and acting coalitions. Because with Sam Rayburn, bills got passed, deals got cut, and he, di and he did build coalitions by which to get different things done. Now, we see some of these same attributes coming out in very different ways with respect to modern House speakers. And so let's talk about three of them. So the first one's Newt Gingrich a Republican from Georgia. He served in the U.S. House from 1997 to 1999. Served as Speaker of the House during his last four years in Congress from 95 to 99. Now, Newt Gingrich was known for being highly partisan and, be, and being super divisive during his time in Congress, and especially during his time as Speaker. Now, one of the things that he did was that he expanded the, the power of the Speaker's office in a way to where it more resembled what you had under Cannon and Reed, rather than say what you had under Rayburn. And so what did he do? Well, first off, solely appointed and replaced committee chairs. So committee chairs are now, now got appointed by the speaker and could be replaced by the speaker. Whereas say prior to Newt Gingrich, like say under speakers Wright and Foley, they did not have this power. So Newt Gingrich gained this power. In addition, Newt Gingrich got to solely appoint members of the Rules Committee from the Majority Party. Now the Rules Committee has 13 members, nine members of the Majority Party, four members of the Minority Party. It is set up that way very specifically because of some unique rules that govern the Rules Committee. And so those nine Majority Party members exclusively get appointed by the speaker, that is, in this case, Newt Gingrich. And, of course, those nine members are going to be who you expect them to be, that is, Newt Gingrich supporters. In addition, you also had six-year term limits on committee and subcommittee chairs. And so what this did is that it centralized control over the policy process to majority party leaders. So the term limits existed to prevent entrenched centers of power from taking hold. And those entrenched centers, of course, being power centers that could potentially run counter to the interests of the speaker. And so to prevent this, that's why you had the term limits in place. You also had government shutdowns, and you had multiple government shutdowns that took place during this time period. You also had several different ethics investigations, including one against Newt Gingrich himself for a book deal. He also led the impeachment against then-President Bill Clinton. And so what are some of his legacies here? Well, he built upon what Cannon and Reid did 
to become the strongest speaker in nearly 100 years. And also, he was partisan. So let me give a quote to him that he wrote in the letter to then minority leader Robert Michael. And Newt Gingrich wrote this back in the 1980s. If you teach them how to be aggressive and confrontational, you will increase their abilities to fight Democrats on the floor. And so some people might think this quote sounds like something that would be said today by many members of the Republican Party. But this was actually said about 40 years before that. Now let's talk about another modern speaker, Dennis Hastert. Now, Dennis Hastert served in the House from 1987 to 2009. Now, he was Newt Gingrich's successor as speaker and served from 1999 to 2007. However, to be clear, Dennis Hastert does have a dubious personal history. Because after he left Congress, he pled guilty to charges of lying to federal investigators about his attempts to cover up sexual misconduct with a former student when he was a teacher in Illinois prior to serving in Congress. And so what did he do while he was in Congress? So the first thing he did is that he built upon some of the practices of Newt Gingrich, but at the same time, got a lot more done legislatively. And so one of the things that he did was he put in what I would call an assembly line legislative process. And so, for example, the USA Patriot Act, which was passed in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks and fundamentally changed civil liberties in many respects. This act got introduced and passed in three days. Now, if we think about that, that's unheard of for a bill to be introduced and get passed all the way through in three days. So Dennis Hanster said the following, the job of the speaker is not to expedite legislation that runs counter to the wishes of the majority of his majority. Now, Dennis Hanster said something here that very much is a maxim, if you will, of how speakers have governed since. And that is this, you get a support of a majority of the majority and then you get the rest of your members to fall in line. And speakers since then have basically done this. In addition, he also neutralized opposition. Now, one of the ways he neutralized opposition was to place earmarks on bills to get wavering party members to support those bills. And so what do we mean by an earmark? So an earmark is a specific provision of a bill usually to allow spending on some specific project targeted in a member of Congress's district to get that member of Congress's support. Or earmarks can be used in other ways too. They can also be used, for example, in what we would call a Christmas tree bill, where you have every member of Congress who gets something out of the bill and gets a specific project that they would like as part of a bill. But either way, earmarks got used to get wavering members to support bills. So Diana Evans, who's a, who's a political scientist, wrote a fantastic book on this called Greasing the Wheels, which came out somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago now. That is a fantastic treatment about how earmarks got used and about why earmarks get used in some of the ways that they get used. And so... All to say, he also held votes open until he got a majority to support it. So, for example, in 2003, 
you had a prescription drug benefit that was added to Medicare. And the bill was being considered on the House floor. And what happened was that the bill looked like it was destined to fail. And if you look at the big board, as far as how members of Congress voted and what the vote counts were, it looked like this thing was going to fail. However, at the 10-minute mark, when, when the vote was supposed to have been gaveled down, Dennis Hastert decided, yeah, let's keep this vote open for another few hours or so. In the meantime, you had, say, Speaker, I should say then Majority Leader Tom DeLay, who himself has his, has his own history and his own dubious political history, if you want to look that up. Uh, chased down different members of Congress from his own party who voted no initially, tried to cut deals with them in varying ways, drugged them back up to get them to vote yes. Meanwhile, one or two who had voted yes turned around voted no, so he turns around and chases them down too. All to say, once they got enough votes to vote yes, boom, gaveled it down, bill passes. And you had a lot of different comments from Democrats at the time who very much panned to this. So his legacy, so Dennis Hastert's legacy during his time in Congress, highly partisan, but legislatively productive, provided that a majority of the majority supports the legislation. So one thing Dennis Hastert did is that he wouldn't bring things up for a vote unless the outcome was basically a foregone conclusion. So let's talk about Nancy Pelosi. So Nancy Pelosi, our current speaker, has served in the U.S. House since 1987 and has served two stints as Speaker of the House from 2007 to 2011 and then from 2019 to the present. So her reputation was for cutting deals within her own caucus and for high levels of partisanship. And so in this respect, in terms of cutting deals and high levels of partisanship, this sounds like a mixture a bit of some of the stuff that Newt Gingrich did and some of the stuff Dennis Hastert did. And I think that'd be a pretty accurate description. But she departed from it in some significant ways. So one way was that she pushed through earmark reform. So earmarks were required to be disclosed three days ahead of any major vote in 2007. Now, in 2011, both the Democratic and Republican Party caucuses passed party rules to put a moratorium on earmarks in 2011. Now, after a decade, and very recently, as of the recording of this video, earmarks come back in, two in 2021. However, there are some significant limits, such that there's some disclosure, and also there's an overall limit on how, mu on how much in money can be spent on earmarks. In addition, she also banned holding open votes specifically for the purpose of manipulating an outcome of a vote. So a lot of the things that happened, say, under Dennis Haster now got banned. In addition, there, there was a provision in the rules to have 72 hours to read major bills prior to a vote. She also enacted lobbying reform, where, where it cleaned up a lot of the relationship between interest groups and members of Congress. In addition, there was also another ethics reform with respect to settlements related to sexual harassment, where prior to this reform, 
Well, what happened is that many members of Congress who were accused of sexual harassment would cut confidential settlements with the settlement proceeds paid for by the federal government, also known as the taxpayers. And so the provision here in the ethics reform was that if a settlement is reached, members of Congress are going to pay for that themselves. This is not going to come from taxpayer funds. In addition, another accomplishment that Nancy Pelosi had was to negotiate bill contents with fellow partisans. So one example of this is the Affordable Care Act. And so some of the contents of the Affordable Care Act were negotiated among Democrats. But Democrats had different views on different provisions of the Affordable Care Act. So if you will, you had a bit of a disagreement between the progressive wing in the non-progressive wing of the Democratic Party about what the Affordable Care Act would be and how far it would go. And you had a deal that was cut between Nancy Pelosi and a group of nine known as the Stupak Nine, Stupak, of course, being Bart Stupak, a rep- then representative from Michigan, to get the Affordable Care Act passed. And this deal dealt with how abortion would be treated under the Affordable Care Act. In addition, you also had the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reforming Consumer Protection Act. Now, this law was passed in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And what it did is it did some key reforms with respect to financial markets and also some key reforms with respect to consumer protection. Now, a very recent example is the contents of the, of the latest COVID-19 relief bill, which as of this recording, just passed the Senate in a different form than it passed the House. So it's going to need to go back to the House to pass. But it started off in the House to pass initially. Now, as part of that process and part of passing the COVID-19 relief bill, Speaker Pelosi negotiated with individual members of Congress and negotiated with groups of members, especially, say, between the progressive wing and the non-progressive wing, to cobble together the votes necessary and to cobble together the package necessary to then send over to the Senate for their consideration. Also, Speaker Pelosi led the impeachments of President Trump, of then President Trump. So both the first impeachment as well as the second impeachment. In addition, under Speaker Pelosi, you also had enhanced oversight of the executive branch. And so you had Congress, which was much more involved in making sure the executive branch was doing things in a manner that Congress intends, or if it didn't do those things, to hold the executive branch accountable for those things. So Speaker Pelosi's legacy is of considerable legislative productivity, but also very high levels of partisanship. So what are some implications of an expanded speakership? So one implication here is that an expanded speakership is especially effective during times in which there's high levels of party polarization. And so let me go ahead and show, show a graph here. And so the vertical axis of this graph is the difference between the media members of the Republican Party and the media members of the Democratic Party. Now, this is shown using a set of ideology scores, what are called DW nominate scores. Now, these scores are calculated based on roll call votes that are taken in Congress all throughout time. And each member of Congress has a different roll call vote score ranging from liberal to conservative or minus one to positive. 
So the highest possible value of the difference between these medians theoretically is two. And so what we see here is we get an increase from 1975 to 2020, or from the 94th to 116th Congresses, from less than 0.6 all the way up to about 0.9. And so if you will, you have about a 50% increase in polarization. Now that's really significant and carries all sorts of political implications for how things operate today. Also, negotiations can still happen along partisan lines. Are they as frequent as, say, for example, happen under Speakers Rayburn or Clay? Certainly not. But at the same time, it does happen. So, for example, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, also known as welfare reform, where you had a negotiation between then-President Clinton and Republicans in Congress over what welfare reform would be. Also, the CARES Act where you had a negotiation between then-President Donald Trump, then-Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi about COVID-19 relief and what COVID-19 relief would look like. And after that negotiation across the three of them, you ended up getting the CARES Act that was produced. Also, you had COVID-19 relief at the end of 2020. Now, under the COVID-19 relief in 2020, you also had a negotiation, this time involving less of then President Trump and more so involving then Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, who negotiated directly with Speaker Pelosi about the varying provisions. Also, while looping in, Majority Leader, then Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Because remember, during this time period, you had Democratic majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. And you, and you had a Republican president. And so as such, to get COVID-19 relief passed, you had to get bipartisan agreement to get this done. But it did get done. In addition, negotiations are much more common today within party caucuses rather than across party lines. And so, for example, the example I gave about the latest iteration of COVID-19 relief. That's, cur that's currently under consideration as of this recording. And so that negotiation largely took place within the Democratic Party in many respects. Initially involved Republicans and President Biden, but pretty quickly moved to the Democratic Party and a negotiation between the different wings within the Democratic Party. And you had different negotiations in both the House and the Senate with respect to the varying provisions. Now some concluding thoughts here. So one concluding thought is that the powers of the speaker do vary over time and they do vary quite considerably. Now, we political scientists have a couple different theories about this. One of them is conditional party government. So the short version of conditional party government is that speakers are more powerful when you have high levels of polarization and highly cohesive parties. A different account of party control over government is, is this idea of parties as procedural cartels, where the idea here is that you have a majority party coalition that wants to win. And so the way they win is through agenda control very significantly. And you have both positive agenda control, which is putting things on the agenda, 
as well as negative control, agenda control. That is keeping things off the agenda. And the idea here is that parties use both positive and negative agenda control to maintain party supremacy within Congress. Also, another concluding thought, powers that the speaker has today originate substantially from that which Reed and Cannon had, followed by Gingrich and Hastert. Another concluding thought is that times disagreeable professional relations between the speaker and the president do become personal. And, and I laid out an initial example of that much earlier with respect to the relationship between Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson. And we saw that again with respect to Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton. And we saw that again with respect to Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. And so with that, I'd like to thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for tuning in. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.